we started a, our summer series, as it were, last week, and we've entitled it Torn Veil. Um, all three of the synoptic gospels in the New Testament, sort of the, uh, the biography, biographies of Jesus, if you will, uh, retell the, the, this bizarre and really amazing event that took place as Jesus breathed his last breath on a Roman cross nearly 2,000 years ago. He died as a sacrifice uh, for the sins of the world. We call that atonement. When that happened, the gospel writers explicitly describe the veil, the curtain that separated humanity, normal people, from the the holy place where the very presence of God would manifest this barrier, if you will, that separated sinful humanity from holy God. It says that when Jesus died, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. On one hand, just this astounding and slightly mysterious event that took place, but also this... um, this symbolic event. Because when the, the veil was torn in two, what was literally happening is that the thing that once separated us from our creator, from our heavenly father, was removed because of Jesus' death on the cross. Which means that a new reality has now been made available to just normal, slightly dysfunctional people like myself and you guys. There's no longer the barrier between us and our creator. Redemption is now made possible. Healing, freedom, transformation. A life, the life that we were given life for in the first place has now been made available to us because of this this veil that was torn. Now, Jesus, he doesn't just say, look at this cool thing that I did once upon a time. He doesn't just invite us to sort of like ponder this slightly bizarre event that took place a long time ago. Jesus, by his spirit, invites us to step through the veil and experience the life that he himself lived and that he died so that we might experience as well. He trades us death for life. Um, And the apostle Paul, I think, puts it very, very well, and I'd like to read this to you. This will be our very first verse this morning. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it says, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This idea of vicariously dying with Jesus just as he died on the cross. Everyone who's been baptized into his death, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we want to look at a whole series of like life categories and explore what does new life look like as we cross over, as we step through the veil, and follow Jesus into this newness of life. 
Now, if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember we handed out like a little ballot, and the idea was, guys, we, we want to not just sort of think about Jesus' death on the cross and this idea of a torn veil in this like utterly abstract sense. We really need to drill down and figure out what does this actually mean in real life. So I handed out a little voting card, and it had about like 20 different topics, life categories on it, and you guys voted to decide what categories of life are we going to look at and figure out how the cross applies to these things. Um, some of you actually filled one out online. It was very, very interesting to see um, what we're thinking about. Anyone want to guess what the, the most voted for category was? Any idea? And if you know, don't ruin it. Dating. No, not even close, actually. Hmm? Politics? No, politics was probably about closer to the bottom. Yeah. Money was way up at the top. Yeah, that was a big one. Um, but number one was work. Yeah, work. In fact, if we can go to the next slide, I don't know if you can actually read that. Um, it's a bit difficult. But I sort of tabulated uh, the responses. So 24 said work. Next one down, stress. Hmm, go figure. So I'll just read them off to you quickly if in case you can't read them. Work, stress, family, money, marriage, romance, friendship, social justice, um, addiction, over to the other side now, uh, depression, happiness, shame, disappointment, politics, spirituality, and then finally, number 16, um, evil. Evil. So, apparently we're thinking a little bit about work, stress, and family. <laughs> that makes sense. Although I have, to, I have to say, I was relatively surprised that sexuality didn't make the top 16. I thought we were just all obsessed with sex, but apparently it's just me. <laughs> I can't say that. I said it. I said it, and I might even preach on it. This morning, we're going to look at the cross and its implications in terms of how we, we work, how we think about work, how we feel about work, our general attitude towards work. So we're going to look at the cross and work. Um, I want to break this into three parts for, this, for us this morning. Number one, Let's get God's perspective on work first. Let's start there. So we're going to go to Genesis, and we're going to try to come to grips with how work was intended to be experienced, how we were meant to view and experience work. Secondly, what went wrong? Because let's face it, a lot of us aren't particularly excited about work. And I think most of us, when we ticked off work, we checked off work as like a category that we would like to see the cross applied to, we're probably thinking, I kind of hate my job. Like, it stresses me out, thus number two category. Um, I'd love to, to be happy about it. I'd love to see the power of God unleashed in my work life. Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, it's also fair to say that some of us probably just love our jobs. 
I love my job. Not always loved my jobs, but I think most of us that we want to know what does the life of Jesus feel like in my work context. So what does God feel about work? Uh, What went wrong? And then thirdly, how does Jesus' work on the cross answer that question? Set us free to enjoy work in the way that God originally had intended us to. Let's begin in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. There we are. This is... After the creation story, God created all that was created in six days, and then he rested. And it said in verse 27, so God created man uh, in his own image. So he created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. After the male and the female, Adam and Eve, our original parents, were created, they were given a job to do. They were in this uh, paradise, as it were, but it wasn't a perfectly completed paradise, the garden, Eden, as the scriptures refer to it as. It was, it was wild. It needed cultivating. It needed tending to. It was like God, he created something, and then he invited the man and the woman to participate in the ongoing creative work that God had begun in the beginning. God invites his children, as it were, to get involved And it's their job. It's their vocation. It's their calling. And it's work. But it's work that God called blessed. It wasn't something that like they had to set their alarm for and kind of drag themselves out of bed to do like most of us do. But it was something that God said, now it's going to get really fun. I've created all of this for you to steward to oversee. Later on, it said that, that uh, the man, Adam, was given the task of naming the creatures, um, which says a lot about just how much the creator trusted his creation. He gave him real responsibility. He entrusted him with authority to actually name the creatures. What a cool job. I mean, this is like the, this is like the ultimate job for like the science nerd. Could you imagine just being given the whole planet, go crazy, knock yourself out. Anything you discover, you get to name. And guess what? Nothing's been discovered yet. Have fun, kid. And this is what they do. But it is work. Just as God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh, we call that Sabbath, he created man male and female in his image, which means that now we were to also work like our Heavenly Father. And it was good. It was good. Ephesians 2, verse 10. 
It says that we have been created, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been designed to work, hardwired. Which is why I would argue work is such a huge part of our lives. It really is. It's, it, it forms a massive chunk of our identity, for better or for worse. It's something that we all deeply desire to do. And if we're not doing it, if you've ever known someone, or if you personally have been unemployed for any, any length of time, it can begin to like strip you of your, your humanity, as it were. I've had a few friends over the years who have been without work for months even in a couple cases, over a year. And it's, um, it's not just that they're like desperate for money or they're, you know, they just kind of need something to do. It's, it taps into something that's, that's common to all of us. Our very humanity seems to be wrapped up in our God-given desire to work, to do the good works that we've been created to do. So it's a good thing, and it's a huge part of our lives. All that to say that it's also potentially a very difficult part of our lives. It's why I think when work's not going well, when we're not finding the job satisfaction that we desire, when we're not getting to do good works, it can, it can kind of ruin our lives. If you've ever had like a, a really difficult job, um, I mean, it can just, it can take its toll over time. So let's talk about that. Stress or satisfaction. What makes our vocation go from perhaps a gift to affliction or blessing to a curse? Be curious. We'll just we'll make it rhetorical for now, but I'd love to see by a raise of hands, like, who really, really loves their job right now? Job satisfaction through the roof. Yeah? Okay, you didn't have to raise your hand. <laughs> Dave, what are you talking? That's awesome. I love my job at the moment. How many of you have ever had a job where you're like, this is, this is killing me, like, this is crushing my soul? <laughs> yeah, every, almost everyone. <laughs> yeah. What is that? What is that? What, what is really our problem? What is going on in a human soul in that scenario? And by the way, I feel like I need to just say for the record now that I have had other like real jobs. I know this isn't like real work. <laughs> I'd like to see you do it. <clears throat> I've had a few doozies over the years. Um, some, I can remember the day, I can remember back in the day when I had like that brainless job. You kind of look forward to because it was just like you could just hit cruise control and it was like zero stress. It was a little boring, but it was just kind of, just, it was just one of those things. Um, I've also had jobs that are like, like boring to the nth degree probably the most boring job I ever had. I was working at a record store, which sounds kind of cool. This was back in the day when like stores actually sold CDs. Remember that? I worked at the warehouse record store. 
worst job ever is when they would make me alphabetize the CDs. I just wanted to, yeah, quit is what I wanted to do and then do other things as well. I've had quite a few jobs over the years. What is the problem with your job that feels like your soul is just caving in under the weight of it all? Um, is it that it's too hard? Is it too boring? Uh, too plain? Because you know how it is when you're like at a party and everyone's asking each other, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do? And if you've got a really lame job, you kind of, you, you sort of wish you could sort of dress it up a little bit. It's just like embarrassingly plain. Um, what about it doesn't pay enough? That's always a drag, especially if you don't like it. You're like, what's the point of anything? How about your coworkers? Are your coworkers, they can be the problem. Let's, let's just be really honest. Sometimes you're, you can have a great job, but your coworkers can just absolutely kill it. Um, rubbish benefits, perhaps. It's an okay job, but I mean, it's really not going anywhere. Those can all be very real problems, but I would argue that they're not the actual problem. In fact, any one of those problems that I just listed off, too hard, too boring, too plain, uh, doesn't pay enough, your coworkers, rubbish benefits, this, this could apply to virtually any aspect of life. Take uh, marriage, for example. Not my marriage, but marriage in general. Uh, too hard, yes, always. Uh, too boring, maybe. Too plain, doesn't pay enough. Your coworker, mm. <laughs> from time to time. Rubbish benefits, we hope not. <sighs> These are symptomatic problems of a much realer problem when it comes to our vocational experience. Yeah, maybe your job is too hard. Maybe it is boring. Maybe your coworkers are a major drag. Those aren't your problems. Those aren't any of your problems. They are, but those are just called life problems. It's not that like something's inherently wrong with you or your particular job. Your job might be terrible. Okay, fine, get a new job. Go to, try to get a better one. <laughs> try to make more money. Um, you can do all sorts of things to address symptomatic problems when it comes to life. But when your work becomes a source of extreme stress, when you find yourself going to work day in and day out and you begin to sort of like wonder about your very identity. Like, what am I doing with my life? Like, what's it all for? Where am I going? Like, why do I feel like an utter failure? I'm 42. Like, what am I doing? And you start to question things that, that strike down to the very core of who you are. That is a problem. But typically... All those other things, those are relatively superficial issues. Not irrelevant, not unimportant. Guys, this is just, that's just life stuff. Let's go back to Genesis. Let's see if we can't get to the real problem. Genesis chapter 3. 
context. If you're at all familiar with Genesis, starts out really, really good, very good, in fact, and then something goes terribly, terribly wrong. The male and the female, Adam and Eve, are tricked. They're tempted. And they end up making a decision that is still impacting our lives to this day. They decide to displace God and use what he created as a substitution for God himself. God says, I'm giving you everything, every bird, every animal, every fish, every tree. It's all for you to steward, to cultivate, to enjoy, to toil over, to work. It's part of your job. And they get about it. But there's one tree, and it happens to be in the very center of this paradise. And God says, you can do anything, you can eat anything, enjoy it all, but just don't mess with the center. Trust me. Obey me. I'm your God. Just don't, don't screw that part up. So what do they do? They're tempted. And they disobey. They disregard. They ignore God. And essentially, they elevate themselves in the place of God. They become their own gods in a momentary lapse of judgment. And the results are catastrophic. Catastrophic. All of creation is impacted by that male and female's rebellion, their choice to disregard God. And this is what happens. And to Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, Eve was tempted, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. That's what he told the man and the woman. Cursed is the ground because of you. Notice he doesn't curse the man, but he curses the ground. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, till you die. The job that the man and the woman had been given to cultivate the earth, to, uh, to, to watch over and to, they were gardeners, they were landscapers in the ultimate garden. And so the thing that you were meant to cultivate and enjoy is now going to be a source of extreme stress and difficulty. You've really, really screwed up. And there's implications. The work has been cursed. They lose their center is what's taken place. When that which was intended to be a means of participation and the creative work of God that is working with our Heavenly Father becomes the very thing which we use as a substitution for God. And they're cursed because of it. Or when work, which was meant to be, as, be an expression, uh, an imitation joining in with the creative work that God himself had started, when that expression of creation 
displaces the creator himself, the means by which the man and the woman were meant to participate with God and enjoy work has now become the object of their affection. When work becomes the means by which you're aspiring to gain some sense of wholeness or achieve some sort of identity that you're finally satisfied with, you're displacing the creator and using what he entrusted to you to give you something it can't. That, you know what we call that? There's a super biblical word for it. It's called idolatry. That's vocational idolatry. That's what was happening that invoked a curse on the very land. Now, here's a question. In your job, and again, we all have jobs. Most of us get some sort of compensation for them. But even if you are volunteering, even if you're a stay-at-home mom like my wife, and she works her butt off, let me tell you, it's her job. It's her vocation at the moment. What are you looking to get out of your job? What, what is your expectation? What are you hoping that it will deliver if you work at it hard enough? <laughs> you ever watch kids work with their dads? Father's Day, right? Happy Father's Day. I'm a dad. I have, I have three little ones. Judah, Evie, and Isaac. Um, Judah's about to turn four, Evie six, Isaac is seven. Judah especially, the, the older they get, the less this is true. But my three-year-old Judah, he loves working with Papa. You know why? Because he wants to be just like me. He worships the ground I walk on. Now eventually, I'll have to break it to him. Like, I'm a really, I'm, I'm an okay dad, lousy God. All right, like, so I'll, let me introduce you to Jesus, and we'll get there. But my boy worships me. He, he literally does. He wants to imitate me. He wants to participate in whatever I'm doing. He wants to be close to me. When my little boy is, quote unquote, working with me, and really by that I mean getting in my way when I'm trying to like get stuff done. Um, when my little boy is trying to join in and participate in the work that I'm doing, that's his way of worshiping me. That's his way of, of drawing close to me. He, he wants to be intimate with me. As we grow up, and it doesn't take long at all, we begin to, to realize, like, hang on a second. Like, I should be getting paid for this. <laughs> like, I, sh I should be receiving compensation. You have the allowance conversation with your kid. And you'd like to explain to him, like, you, you, know, you realize I do pay for rent for everyone, right? You do realize that I pay for all this food, right? And you want allowance? Why? Because I'm making you pick up your guinea pig's poop off the ground? Okay, we can, we can do that. Only because I'm trying to teach you responsibility. But we begin to think that, like, hey, I'm working. I should be, I should be compensated for this. And this idea that I'm getting to participate in something that's fun and meaningful with my father, eh, I'm over it. I want something. 
I want to get something out of it. I need compensation. And it starts with allowance, but as we get older and older and older, we begin to demand something much, much more valuable. And that's a sense of satisfaction. It's significance, which is arguably one of our most core needs as human beings. Security, like to be loved, and significance, to know that our lives actually like, count for something. And we demand it, oftentimes, out of our jobs, our vocations. We can get it. Okay, I, I want to be fair. Some of you have amazing jobs, and you're probably thinking, like, I don't, I don't see what the problem is. This whole, like, uh, vocational idolatry thing, that just sounds to me like someone who takes their career seriously, makes some good money, experiences job satisfaction. Yes, that's good. That's good. That's great. That's wonderful. But if your job is your idol, if you're looking to get something out of it that only God can give you, just as Adam and Eve did once upon a time, eventually that idol will demand compensation in return. It doesn't work for free any more than you do. Your job will demand something back. It will demand your marriage. It will demand your family. It will demand your health. It will in some way demand your life. If you're looking to get identity out of it, you may find it, but it will cost you something else. You will substitute something that was meant to be given to you by your heavenly father for a second-rate imitation version that a vocation can potentially give you, but will pale in comparison to what you were meant to experience as a child of God. God wants us to experience what it's like to go to work um, as a child of God, where we begin to gain a perspective of our vocation that's not simply a, like a, a necessary evil, a spiritual means to a practical end or vice versa. But primarily, we see ourselves as whatever I get up to, however well or poorly it compensates, I primarily do good work in the world as a child of God. And that's where my identity lies. Now, I realize you may not agree with that at all. You may be thinking, that's incredibly naive. Sounds okay. Sounds very spiritual. Mm, but, yeah? Does it work? Well, I believe it does. But you'll have to make that call for yourself. You'll have to decide that. How does Jesus, his work on the cross, rescue us from vocational idolatry, the tyranny of work, the demand that it makes, and how consistently it fails to deliver what we're actually looking for? 
Um, let's throw up that diagram that we looked at last week. So this is a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus beyond the veil. This is what it looks like to, to be buried with Jesus in baptism. So we start out over on the left, the kingdom of me, where essentially we're bartering with God and the world and everything around us in hopes that we'll get something that's relatively satisfactory. Eventually, hopefully, we'll realize that idols really don't make great gods. And so we realize I need to die to myself. I need to die to everything that I've used to somehow displace God as the center in my life and follow Jesus to death that is self-denial to the cross. Once we go to the cross and we confess our sins and say, Jesus, all of these other things have failed to deliver. For some of you, it may take your entire life to come to that realization. I hope it doesn't. But eventually you realize that there's only one true and faithful, good, capable king in the universe, and that is God. That is Jesus. And so we follow him. We die to ourselves so that we can be raised to new life. We become members of the kingdom of God. We experience life in the spirit, something on the inside of us begins to change. And by the way, it is a daily process. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily. I think one of the problems that we often make as spiritual people, as followers of Jesus, if you are one, is that we hear a sermon and we try to sort of apply it, but just simply in our brains and or maybe I'll try it out for like a week. And it's like, ah, oh, it didn't work. Dang it, like maybe next time I'll get Simon to, to wave his magical Bible over me. And maybe that will do it. No, it won't work. Because it's a daily thing. It's a lifestyle. It's something that we have to choose to do daily. And so we follow Jesus. We take up our cross. We continue to deny ourselves. We continue to take the bat to our idols and we worship Jesus and we participate in the good work that he's created us to enjoy. And we experience life as citizens in the kingdom of God or children in his family. What happens when we commit to doing that? Well, first of all, we get a new center. Arguably, this is probably the most spiritual aspect of the process. It's hard to put into words. It's hard to articulate. But when we surrender our lives and begin to follow Jesus, something truly does happen on the inside of it. Jesus referred to it as being born again. We get a new nature. We literally become like new people. It's, it's the same me, but like totally different. Something on the inside begins to happen. And I receive a new center. Romans 5.5 5 says that God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Our hearts start to get filled with the love of God. We start to become more like Judah. Little kids who aren't looking for compensation, who just want to go to work with dad, who want to be like dad. And begin to see the world the way we once did. As children of God. 
created for good works, things to participate with our Father in. We're also given a new motivation. It says that the love of God which is poured into our hearts is the very thing that compels us. It drives us. It motivates us to act and to behave in a different way. Why do you go to work? For personal job satisfaction or for the love of God and others? When you go to work in the morning, do you ever think to yourself, yes, this is such an awesome opportunity to possibly love people the way God loves people. To enjoy God in in maybe a new way that I've never done before. Let me ask you this. Does your job have anything to do with people? If you say no, I will argue with you publicly. (laughs) Everything we do somehow has something to do with people, whether you're building modems or, I don't know, what do we do? What do you do? (laughs) What do you... What kind of jobs do you have? Every single job on the planet has something, some way to do with people. We all sell products. We're all sending emails. We're, We're interacting. Whatever you do, and granted, you might have a terrible job, and I really feel so sorry for you. We can pray for you. Your terrible job is not your problem. Something needs to happen in here. Something must happen in here. And when it does, you might find that that job you hate that has people all around it starts to become a daily opportunity for you to love people somehow the way God does. That's called significance. And finally, we're given a new outlook, a new perspective. Let me close with this. Yep. Um, go ahead and come on up, Hannah. Closing music time. I used to work with my dad when I was a little kid. He drugged me to work with him. I did not like it. He was an electrician. He had very, very hard hands. It's the reason I went to college. And I remember thinking, I, I can vividly remember thinking, like, what did I ever do to deserve this punishment? Like, I hated it. We would, like, be out of the house before the sun was even up. It was cold, and it was hard. Yesterday, I went out to uh, Gabe and Hannah's new place. They're building out there in Damascus, um, building this beautiful home. I was so excited for the opportunity to get to, like, install lighting fixtures, which is what my dad made me do when I was a kid. You know, I completely missed the point when I was this big. If I had just paid like this much attention, I might be building my own house today. My, my dad built the house that they're living in. Don't know how he learned how. Literally built the thing from the ground up. Framing, electricity, plumbing, the works. All I saw when my dad was dragging me to work with him is that I just... My, what did I do to deserve this slavery? I hate this work, and my dad's making me do it, and I missed the point. My dad was trying to teach me something. Certainly, I think I was, build, he was building some character in me, making me do some things I didn't really want to do, and 
doing hard work and all that good stuff that every parent should do for their kids. But I think he was also trying to teach me how to build a house. And I kind of missed the point. I picked up a few things. To grind and I like two hours to hang a light yesterday. <laughs> Guys, if you're in a rough job right now, if your vocation is crushing you, maybe you need a new job. Fair enough. Maybe that's not a possibility at the moment. Maybe God wants to teach you something in that difficult place. Here's my advice to you. Guys, don't wait for the magic wand. Don't simply try to treat symptoms. Repent. Go to the cross. Ask God to forgive you for trying to make a God out of your vocation, hoping to receive some sort of compensation that only God himself actually has the ability to give you. And begin to pray every day. Before you go to work tomorrow morning, pray. Don't ask God to change things. Ask him to change your heart. Say, God, thank you for giving me this job. Thank you that I have a job. Thank you for the people that I'm going to interact with today. Won't you help me to love them the way you do? Help me not have a bad attitude. There's a lot of people in this city who would probably love to have the job I hate. And do it every day. Do it every day. Go to work with dad and see what he wants to get up to. Don't just do it because you're hoping to get something out of it. Do it because you've been given so, so much. And see what he does. Maybe the job you hate will end up being the job that you fall in love with. Who knows? Maybe you'll end up running the place. Maybe it'll turn into an amazing career. Or maybe God will release you from the tyranny. You know, sometimes, sometimes God's like, look, at, you know, I have a really good job lined up for you, but you're just going to blow it. Like, we got to work on that character first. We just got to. Until your attitude, now this is my dad talking. Until we get your attitude right, <laughs> our God is so faithful. He's such a good father.